0: We had the great privilege not to introduce him just in passing this morning, but Dave and uh, Jasmine McGraw, their family, is with us. Dave, uh, you guys have been gone eight years, I think, right? So Dave just uh, uh, separated or just retired from the Air Force after 20 years of service uh, back in February. And he and his wife and family now reside in Spokane, Washington. They uh, are at Christ Our Hope Bible Church there in Spokane. Uh, David is an intern with that ministry, and he's also um, uh, a student uh, at the Master Seminary and their uh, extension campus there in Spokane area. So he's a dear brother. We love his family, and I'm excited for him to come and share God's word with us. All right? Come on, David. Uh, good evening. Uh, if you. <laughs> You want to turn to Second uh, 2 Thessalonians two thirteen. I just want to take a moment as you're turning to thank uh, Bill uh, and John and Bob and Ken and just uh, what an impact they've been on our my wife and I's life. And I also want to take a moment just to um, just to tell you how we love you, um, all the dear brothers and sisters who we came to know here at Christ our Hope, and we though we have been absent though we have Maybe not communicated the best. We have been praying for you, and we have been in your sufferings and in your joys. To those who we haven't met yet, I'm very encouraged at the love for Christ that I've seen at uh, small groups and this morning, and just very encouraged about this church and this ministry. And so, with that, Second Thessalonians two thirteen through seventeen. The word of God says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Please play with me. Lord, I come before you thankful, thankful for your word and how it has laid upon my heart, Lord, and I just pray. I pray that this comfort, this love for our salvation would just flow out. That it would be clear and faithful to your word, and that you would be glorified, and that we would be encouraged and comforted, and that we would stand firm in your word in the daily lives that we live. I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Have you ever been tested by trials? I'm sure all of us in this room. I've had a moment in our lives where we were on that verge and we didn't know if we would make it or not, or we struggled and we didn't know how to move forward. Our heart in these moments was aching. Our pains were like companions to us. In these things that we were struggling with, whether it was a wayward child Whether it was depression, whether it was the struggle with a spouse, or just a general sense of frustration in your life that cannot be contained. These trials weigh us down. We are dragging them through our life, and sometimes we don't even know that they are there. They are a weight upon our hearts that weigh us down, and we have grown so accustomed to them that we do not bring them before the Lord in prayer. And I know that all of us, in some form and fashion, are struggling with something in this very moment, something that is on your mind that continually comes into your view that you have difficulty with. There was a man who could empathize with this. In the late 1800s, he was a successful attorney and a real estate investor. But in the Chicago Fire of 1871, he lost all of his fortune. And shortly after that, he lost his son to scarlet fever. And if that wasn't enough, in all the desperation that he felt, he desired to get away. So he took his daughters and his wife and sent them ahead while he finished his work. And and they took a ship to England. And a few weeks later, as he's finishing up his things, he gets a telegraph that says, Saved alone, what should I do? From his wife. All four daughters were gone. And in this moment, In this tragic moment of of this man's life, he was challenged. And just as you are challenged in your pain and your suffering that you bring today. But in this passage that we will open up, it will show you what Paul thought, the antidote to strengthen and comfort you with these pains and these trials that you go through every day. And so, in this passage, the central theme that Paul wants us to grasp is that we need to hold fast to our salvation in trials. And he gives us how we do that. In verses 13 through 14, we'll see that he gives thanks to God for his salvation. In 15, we will see how he desires us to stand firm. And in 16 and 17, how our petitions before the Lord interact with all of that to strengthen us and comfort us for the good work that is set before us. And so it is with that that we enter the text in verse 13. Verse 13 says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved of by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Now he starts this word with the word but, and it's important that we stop and take an understanding of what he has just said. This word allows us to see that there's things in opposition to each other that we need to be aware of. And so, Before we enter this text and we see this word, there's a historical perspective that is important as we approach this text. That this church in Thessalonica was founded on the second missionary journey of Paul. And we can see that and we have the testimony of its establishment in Acts 17, verses 1 through 9, where Paul stays in Thessalonica for three Sabbaths. Almost three weeks to four weeks he is in here preaching the gospel And many come to Christ. And Thessalonica is just not another city in Macedonia. It is the chief city of Macedonia. It is the capital. And so this is the central place with many who need to hear the gospel. And this comes right after Paul leaves Philippi. He gets beaten in prison. He says, okay, we still have to do the ministry. We're going to Thessalonica. And so Paul had preached and taught, and many had come to Christ in Thessalonica. And so there are two letters that we have in Scripture from Thessalonians. The first one, he writes to them in desperate desire to see how they're doing. He had left there after a month, and he desired to see whether they were still faithful to the Word. And he also addresses in 1 Thessalonians the need that they thought, hey, we'd missed the rapture. Those who have died already what happens to them? And so in the First Thessalonians, Paul very clearly expresses that that's not true. You haven't missed it. Because those who fall asleep will be gathered together with those who are alive and in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. And so we see that he has, he has strengthened the Thessalonian church to that perspective. In Second Thessalonians, he again faces an eschatological issue, something about the end times that he is dealing with. And so in, verses, in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1 through 3, we see this perspective that he is handling an issue. This church had been shaken by a spirit or a message or a letter that had come from somebody who was not of an apostle and was a heretic and did not understand the truth nor know the truth, but derailed some of the faithful in this church in Thessalonica. And so we have to understand that, yes, this has occurred, but this church was a very young church. And it was plagued by heretics. And not only that, but it was under persecution. It was under persecution by the Gentiles. And so just like Judea, when the Jews were persecuting the Christians there, Thessalonica faced that same issue. And so Paul is encountering this, and he is trying to give them comfort, and his comfort comes in this thought, that you must hold to your salvation in trials. You must hold to your salvation in trials. So this, is, this, this part of the text in verse 13 is an opposition. So he has talked about in verses 10, and 12, 10 through 12 that he has seen that opposition of people that haven't accepted the truth. And so he says, but it puts this in opposition to the people who haven't accepted the truth and to opposition to the people who have. And so we see that opposition and we see where Paul is going to encourage us. If we continue on in verse 13, he says, we should always give thanks to God for you. Now, Paul, if you read the two letters, he is continually giving thanks for all the churches, this church in particular. In verse one, or chapter 1, verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians, he gives thanks to the church because their faith is not only known in Thessalonica, it is known in all of Macedonia. So to give you a perspective, this is like Ohio and Indiana and lower Michigan, that's that area, their faith is known in all that area. So this church is a very strong church, on fire for the Lord, on fire for the gospel, preaching the word faithfully. But they have had issues that Paul is coming after and trying to help them with. But in this text, those thanks that Paul gives in 1 Thessalonians and in 2 Thessalonians in the beginning of the, of the books is, in, is different from this here. Because in those things, he gives thanks to God, but he gives thanks because of the things that he has done. In this text, in this verse, he changes the viewpoint of what he's focused on. He is fully focused upon God himself. He says, we should always give thanks to God for you. His focus is on the God's power and his authority to to draw this Thessalonian church to draw those that he has chosen to believe in him and so we see that perspective change in this thank you that he has given and so he moves on in verse 13 and he says he says brethren beloved of the lord and so these are other references to the you to those in the Thessalonian church and so that first title brethren in the plural form this is this is the church right the men and women of the church this is the lateral relationship that they have because they have believed in god but there's also he goes on and says beloved by the lord and we see in this title of the you that there's a vertical relationship also that comes with salvation that you are beloved by the Lord. And so in this, in this moment, when he's addressing this church, just by their titles, we see that they are believers, brethren, with Paul, brothers and sisters in Christ. We see that they are beloved by the Lord. They have a relationship with Almighty God. And this is, is what he chooses to call them so that they are reassured of their position, not only in the church, the visible church in Thessalonica, but also in the spiritual perspective that they are beloved by God. He goes on in verse 13 and he says, Because God has chosen you for, as the first fruit for salvation, And so if we just deal with the main part of this this sentence, because God has chosen you for salvation. So he's giving thanks to God that he has chosen you, the Thessalonian church, for salvation. And so in this moment, we see the choice of Almighty God before the time began to set his love upon specific people in view here of the Thessalonian church, to save them. And so there is an understanding of choosing that we just have to, we have to grasp, is that when we choose something, we are choosing, we are doing two things. We are making a conscious decision of that choice, and the second thing is we are taking an action based on that decision upon something. And so in the human perspective, this is kind of like we make a choice at the exclusion of other choices in the human perspective. And so as an example of this, I would say when I, when I go to the store and on Friday nights and we're going to get ice cream and we're going, to, we're going to watch a movie, I have to go to the store and I have to look and I open it up and I sit there for a while I look and I gaze upon all the choices that I can make and obviously there's only one choice something chocolate with chocolate in it and more chocolate on top but once in a while I like pralines and cream and so I have to sit there and make that decision what do I make an exclusion to the other this is the human perspective of decision making but we must make a difference in our minds very clearly that heavenly decision making by god is different from our human decision making god makes his choice based on his counsel with full power and authority to choose exactly who he wants when he wants and how he wants and so to evidence this we look at god's power And so we go to John 6, 64 and 65. And we see at the end of 65, he says, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. There is a granting of the Father for those who come to Christ. It screams of a choice that is being made. Psalm 115, verse 3 says... But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. We must understand that heavenly decision-making is not earthly decision-making. And if we want to hammer this even more, we go to Daniel 4.35. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? In the pinnacle to understand this perspective of God's choosing as Romans 9:16 and 18. He says, "So then it does not depend on man who wills and man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires." God is a powerful God, and he only considers his own counsel. And the other perspective here that we have to understand is that this word choose is not like the other words choose that we see in Scripture. This is the only time it is used in Scripture. If we look at Ephesians 1.4 and we see just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, it is a different word. And so we want to bring out that aspect of this, this different word that we see in 2 Thessalonians 13, of to choose and it has an aspect of taking so paul wants to draw out for you that he not only chose but he had an aspect of he took you he had possession of you he had power and authority over you and his counsel was his own and so he hammers home for us that god chose you And we see that perspective come out very clearly. But we might say, what about Romans 10.9? We might say, what about faith? Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I would say, yes. God says both. He determines and you believe. And if we want to take a picture of this, it is kind of like a ripple on the water of the ocean in the middle of a hurricane. A ripple on the water of the ocean in the middle of a hurricane. Yes, that ripple has occurred. Yes, I have believed. But God's sovereignty reigns. And it is powerful. And he has the power to choose. Verse 13 goes on and says, Because God has chosen you as his firstfruits for salvation through sanctification by the spirit of faith and truth. And so we see this perspective Paul wants to bring out firstfruits. This drives us back to the first fruits, the illusion that goes back to the harvest of the offspring of animals that are dedicated and exclusively sacred to God. We are God's first fruits. Just how Abel offered his first fruits to God and he was pleased, we are the first fruits of Christ. And specifically in this church, these new believers were the first fruits in Thessalonica. And so we see that perspective come out. Okay. So we are the first fruits for salvation. That we are have a desire and a means of our salvation. So when we say this, we say we are the first fruits for salvation through sanctification. And it's really by the means of sanctification. So what do we what are we going after when we say that? Well, let's define our terms. When we look at sancti- our sanctification, we want to understand exactly what we're talking about. And so when we say sanctification, I would say The reference is to the initial sanctification, including that, which is salvation, but it is also that progressive Christ-like growth that ultimately ends in glorification. And so when we look at sanctification, Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, for God has chosen not, God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So just as he chose us, he is at work in our sanctification. And it says that, the next part of that verse, through the Spirit. Because our faith is important, it is also included in in this statement that Paul makes. That you are called through salvation, through sanctification, by the Spirit, through faith, And so as we see that perspective come out and faith in the truth, we say, well, okay, Paul, you, you have this perspective that you want us to gain that we need to hold fast to our salvation in trials. You are driving us to have a grand picture of God as the chooser of our salvation. And then you say, by faith. And so it's important that we understand that this is, is this is essential because faith is the evidence of God's choosing and it is the assurance that we have in him to complete the work that he has started through sanctification. And so in this perspective, in the entirety of this verse, we want to see that we should always give thanks to God for you the ones who, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And so this is important for us to understand, that the Spirit is working in us to accomplish what the Father determined for us and Jesus provided to us. But we have this tension, right? The spirit is working through our sanctification and our faith is at work also. And so this is a tension that we never want to relieve from scripture. Philippians twelve or 2, 12 through 13 gives us this tension that exists. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but also more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's your part. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's the tension. He tells you to work out your own salvation. Really sanctification, right? You are being sanctified. And he also says, but it is a God who does the work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so we see that tension in in the text. The same tension that Paul provides for us in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. And we have to understand that there is a, a work of God's sovereignty in our faith that is built together. But like that hurricane, yes, it has occurred, but the greater perspective that we have to have is that it's God's sovereignty who does the work. And so one example I'd give you is that if you are telling distance and you don't have uh, any gps you look at trees right and so you look at the trees and if you see them 10 miles off you usually see the tree you may see a couple branches but you can tell that's about eight to ten miles when i come up closer three to five miles i can start to make out a lot of branches when i come up less than a mile i can start to make up leaves And so Paul wants us to see that 10-mile perspective that it is God who chose you in salvation through sanctification. And it is the spirit that is working and your faith in the truth. And so he wants us, he's drawing us in this larger perspective of, of 2 Thessalonians to a greater understanding of what God has done for us that we may cling to it in times of trial. And he says, hold fast your salvation and we must give thanks. And so it moves on to verse 14 and we see it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want you to see this perspective that in verse 13 it says God had chose. And in verse 14, it says, it was, for this he called you through the gospel. So the same God that chose is the same God that called you through Paul. And to understand the the magnitude of what has just happened here, let's look at the historical perspective, right? Paul wanted to go to Galatia. He had a desperate need to go to Galatia. And the Lord just kept stopping him and stopping him and saying, no, no. You're not going. No, you're not going. Whether through trial, whether through situation, whatever he did to stop Paul, he stopped him in his tracks. And in that night, he gave him a vision of a Macedonian that was saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So Paul's desire was for Galatia, but God's desire was not for Galatia, but for Macedonia at this specific time. And so we see that perspective that that God drew him. But it even gets bigger than that, right? Just to understand the magnitude of what God has done, God called a persecutor of the Christians, Paul himself, who was persecuting Christians not only in Jerusalem, but also in other foreign lands. And he desired to not only put them in prison, but put an end to this Christianity. And God turned his heart 180, gave him a renewed heart, and brought him to Christ himself. So God's love for the Thessalonians was wrapped up in his choice of Paul. It was wrapped up in his direction of giving Paul direction to go to Macedonia, to go to this Thessalonian church. So he had done a lot. A great amount of work to push this exact moment for Paul to enter Thessalonica to present the gospel to this church. That they may come to Christ by God's own choosing. And God provided the way. He provided Paul. He provided the gospel. And he called them. And so... His desire, God's desire, was to call these specific people to himself. We could say he chose them and he brought it to pass. And is this not a miracle? Is this not a wonderful thing? That each and every person that comes to Christ is a product of God's choosing. And so if you know Christ here today, if you love your Savior, then your assurance and your salvation is that he made that choice before the foundation of the world. And who is to stop him? And who is to tell him that he can't? Nobody. And so we see that he brought the gospel to Thessalonica to fulfill his choice of these people. He goes on in verse 14 and he says that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if, there was not, if this was not sufficient that he has called you, he has brought you through a miracle, your belief and faith in the truth through his choice, he also says that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 really reflects this perspective of what Paul is bringing out. He says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding in the mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. We know this process through sanctification that we are not perfect, that we fail many times but we are empowered by the Spirit and it is evidenced by our faith and we are driving to a specific direction. We are driving to the direction that we need to have this perspective that Paul is bringing out for us, that we need to understand the end game. This life is not the place that we are going to stay forever. There is a path that we are going through sanctification to glorification where we will be with Christ forever in heaven. And he wants, Paul wants you to have that perspective, especially in your trials. Whatever you are going through, he wants you to know that God has chosen you, God has called you for glory. And that was provided a way through grace by the Lord Jesus Christ. There also is a cultural reason here that we want to just touch on is that this culture is different from our culture. He is encouraging this Thessalonian church that are Roman. And in the Roman culture, it was an honor-shame perspective. And the closest thing that we have to this is the oriental culture right japan and china it's an honor shame culture you seek honor you bring honor to yourself to your family or you bring shame and so this church at thessalonica that was turning the world upside down that all of macedonia was a testimony to their gospel and to their love of the brothers and sisters in christ they were preaching the gospel of christ who was shamed on the cross in a human perspective of the gentiles but this very understanding that that you may gain the glory of our lord jesus christ drives it home to this church to the roman culture that yes they are preaching a crucified christ who has risen again but it is for the glory the ultimate the end game the glory that Christ will bestow upon them and so not only does it bring encouragement to us but it has that perspective for this Roman church that we may have missed from our difference in cultural perspective God called them to his this glory which is of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is also exalted. And so this point that we need to give thanks, the reason that Paul gives thanks to God is that God has chosen them. God has called them through sanctification, by the Spirit, through the faith and truth. And so how does that apply to us? How does that apply to us in this common day? Paul thought so much of this that a shaky young church had to hear the truth that you hadn't missed the day of the Lord. And he clarified that for them. But to encourage them, he said, he wrote this 13 through 17 to show them that they should have faith in their salvation, cling to their salvation, because it wasn't their doing, it was God's. God chose them. God brought the preacher to share the gospel. God will keep them through the Spirit, through sanctification. And their faith was evidence of the irrevocable change that had occurred. And so this is the same perspective that we need to take into our daily lives. There are things that rock us to our core. There are issues that we have been dealing with, sins that we have been fighting and battling for decades. And Paul draws us to this perspective that we need to have an understanding of the end game. That our salvation is chosen by God and it will be brought about. And there is nothing that will be able to separate us from the love of God. We need to really grasp that, to internalize it. We may know that. We may intellectually understand that concept, that God has done the work, he has chose us, he has presented the gospel to us sometime in our life. He has raised a person or a church to come along with us through sanctification. But do we understand that he had you in mind? He had your name. He had you specifically in his mind as he was unfolding the world because he chose you. And in time, he brought it about. He raised people around you to to share the gospel and he brought you to Christ. And God is a choosing God and he's a personal God. And we need to understand that no matter what trial we face, whether a wayward child, deep depression, the frustration with life, the uncertainty for the future, We need to cling to our salvation. And so this is why Paul gives thanks. But he moves on in verse 15 to say, stand firm. He wants us to understand that perspective, stand firm. Verse 15 says, so then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. This really means, so then, as a result, with the result, that you will stand firm and hold to the the traditions which you were taught. And so we see this perspective in light of our salvation being a work of God, that practically works out in our lives. And so he is saying, cling to your salvation, and by clinging to your salvation, you are able to stand firm no matter what is opposing you. There is nothing that is above the power of God, and your clinging to your salvation will enable you through the Spirit, by faith, to overcome anything that is in your path. You have the full weight and the power of God not only on your side, but within you, working through you, to sanctify you in an ultimate desire to glorify you. If these things that you suffer, those things that you have grown accustomed to, those trials that you have been in the background and they come up frequently, this is the power of the word of God to bring to bear on your lives and your hearts in every situation that it is God who chooses, God who brings to pass, and he will handle anything that is in your way. He moves on in verse 15 and says, Brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. In this command, he says to stand firm. Also, he gives the command to hold to the traditions which you haven't taught. And so this perspective for us as Paul has been in this church, he has taught in this church. He has presented the truth to them, and they have it by his word. But they also have two letters, right? And so this is early in, the, in church history when we have the letter of James and First and 2 Thessalonians is now the second piece of scripture that is, that is written down. And so this Thessalonian church is holding in their time period the second and third book of the Bible. And so they of all churches at this moment have the word of God not only taught to them by the Apostle Paul, but written to them in an epistle, a letter to stand firm. And so we see this perspective that they have. And so this perspective of standing firm just drives us to that echo of Daniel where Daniel is taken to Babylon. And he has given all these choice foods. But he says he made up in his mind, and I really like the New King James wording. It says he purposed in his heart. He purposed in his heart. This was Daniel standing firm. This is Paul drawing us to stand firm and light of the reality that God chose us for salvation and brought it to pass. And so we see this perspective that he is, he is drawing us to. One commentator says this, he says, these teachings that they had already received were the antidote for the destabilizing confusion that had entered the church by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has come they had took this theological novelty and rejected it in favor of the traditions of the apostle that they had been taught personally and the letters, the scripture that they had in their hand. And so this is why Paul says, hold fast to your salvation in trials. He says, give thanks to the one who did it. Stand firm because he has done it. And you have the faithful word that we have taught you. And you have the faithful word that we have written you in these letters. And so the last, the last point that Paul is trying to make is the petition to God. And we see that in verse 16 and 17. He says, Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strength in your hearts in every good work and word. This is an interesting use of the personal pronoun as an emphatic, right? He says, may the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He could have just said, the Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father. But he doesn't. And that perspective is small. But he's trying to draw out for us this overall perspective that it is Christ crucified and who was risen again. Christ himself the one that Paul preached that not only was a man, but was God himself and was equal to God. And so he wants to draw that out for us by saying that explicative, that that himself, back to Christ. And he goes on and says, God, our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. And so not only does he want to give perspective to Christ himself as the one who is equal to God, but he wants to draw us to attention to God the Father and so that we may glorify him more. He says, and this is best understood, this parenthetical phrase afterwards, to be directly to God the Father. He says, God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope, by grace. He is pointing the direction back to the Father, pointing the direction back to his love for us, pointing the direction back to the eternal comfort we have that we will be eternally saved and we are eternally assured because the choice of our salvation was God himself. And it gives us a hope by the grace. So that hope that we will someday see him face to face by grace through the atonement in Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 17 and he says, Comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. This is what he desires us to walk away with. This is his petition to God, that Christ himself and God the Father who loved us and demonstrated his love for us through the eternal comfort and good hope and grace that we might gain this comfort and strength in our hearts. And so he uses two words here, comfort and strength. And so comfort really is, is a healing word, right? So he comforts you, he consoles you, he heals you, he welcomes you, embraces you in his arms. But then it says he strengthens And so strengthening is really a preparation word for something. He is strengthening you in your walk. And he is strengthening you in your heart. And why is he doing that? He's doing that for good work and the word that will come after by your confidence in your salvation. And we see this, right? When we are most enraptured when we are in we, we we love christ the most when we are in our word when we are in prayer when our relationship with christ is on fire we can't help but to speak of his word we can't help but to declare his truth to the gas station attendant to the person who crosses your path to the person in the next cubicle at work To the stranger that comes up and asks you a question on the street, we can't help but to declare his word because we understand the power that he has brought upon us to choose us, to save us, his desire in the end to glorify us, and we want to give that hope, that comfort to others that it might strengthen them. And so we see that perspective come out for us. One commenter says, What orients this church, this Thessalonican Thessalonican church, is their conduct and their communication in the present time, according to this prayer, is the past and future work of God. The importance of this prayer is highlighted by the agonizing adversity this congregation faced daily. The prayer not only presents a petition to God, but also serves in an implication, implicit exhortation to the Thessalonians to live lives that are in harmony with the desire expressed in the prayer. This is God's desire for you. And his choice even goes into your works. In your words, we see in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created for Christ Jesus, for good works, which God has prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Not only has God chosen you, not only has he called you, not only has he sanctified you, your being sanctified through the Spirit and your faith in the truth, But he has prepared the works before you that he desires for you. This should give us great love for the Christ who has paid the price for our sins. This should give us great love for the Father who has chosen us from the beginning of the world. This should comfort us and strengthen us in times of greatest trial Now, we know if we look around at the world around us that it is crazy, that there are things that are unprecedented and that we would have never thought would have happened two years ago. And we see the trajectory of this path that the world is on, and it is getting crazier. And our lives are difficult, and they are increasing in difficulty but I want you to understand the antidote to that craziness is that we must hold fast to our salvation and trials and we must have a grand perspective of our God who has the power and authority and the omniscience to choose you from the foundation of the world for salvation and is right now working in your hearts to sanctify you from one aspect of glory to another that in the end you will look like Christ. That should bring us comfort. And as we enter our week, this coming week, those things that we never thought would happen, those things that try us, we must come back to this. This is the central aspect of the gospel. Though we are have been saved, some of us, for a lot longer than others. We all need to come back to the gospel. It should never be the freshman class thing to, oh, I got the gospel and then I'll move on. No, this is the central jewel of Christ's scripture, the gospel that God himself has called you for salvation through his son, through the atoning work of his son, to himself, and he will glorify you in the day that he comes. And there is nothing in this world that can derail that, and nothing that will stop that. That is what we need to hold to. Our salvation, especially in the trials that try us every moment of our day. That man that we spoke of In the beginning was Horatio Spatford, if you didn't guess it already. A man who lost his wealth, lost his son to disease, his four daughters, lost them to a shipwreck, and his wife alone was saved. And in this moment, Horatio Spatford faced one of these trials that is just tremendous one that is beyond what we can handle physically and mentally. And he was able to cling to Christ, to cling to his salvation, and to pen these words. When he says, Peace, like a river, attendeth my, my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my love, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and that he has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, when I am glorified, that the clouds will be rolled back like a scroll, and the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall ascend, even so it is well with my soul. Horatio Spatford was able to cling to his salvation, cling to the understanding that he his way is secure in Christ, and it should be a testimony to us that no matter what the situation, what the trial that you're facing, that Christ is powerful, that the Father is able to keep you and to guard you and to protect you. And so as Paul's desire for all of his churches was to present them blameless before the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns. And so that is our Desire, and I know it is the desire of this church and of your elders to present you blameless before the Lord Jesus Christ when He returns. And they work tirelessly to shepherd this church, to love you, to cherish you. And their desire is to present you before Christ. And that is my desire also. Let's pray. Lord, I come before you thankful for the, for the word of God. Thankful that you have given us your salvation. You have chosen us. You have redeemed us. You have the power to keep us. Lord, I pray for anybody here that desires to hear the word of truth, that it may impact their heart. That they may see their need to love Christ more to excel still more. And I pray that you would empower them and allow them to see your hand in their lives. They may be encouraged in whatever you have them facing. And they would share your gospel with the people around them. That it would flow out of them like a living well and on to all those who they come in contact with that this state, that this nation would be overturned by their desire and their love for Christ and their love for the brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.